Welcome to Professors Talk Pedagogy, a podcast from the Academy for Teaching and Learning at Baylor University. I'm your host, Christopher Richman. Professors Talk Pedagogy presents discussions with great professors about pedagogy, curriculum, and learning in order to propel the virtuous cycle of teaching. As we frankly and critically investigate our teaching, we open new lines of inquiry, we engage in conversation with colleagues, and we attune to students' experiences, all of which not only improves our teaching, but enriches and motivates ongoing investigation. And so the cycle continues. Today, our guest is Dr. Mojgan Parizzi Robinson, Senior Lecturer and Director of the Learning Assistance Program in Biology at Baylor University. Dr. Parizzi Robinson's research focuses on intracellular signaling and pathways in wound healing and cancer. In addition to teaching human anatomy lecture and lab courses, she teaches a pedagogy course for biology learning assistance. This year, 2022, Dr. Parizzi Robinson was the recipient of the Collins Outstanding Professor Award. We are delighted to have Dr. Parizzi Robinson on the show to discuss the role of struggle in learning, flipping her course, and teaching undergraduates to help other students learn. Mojgan Parisi Robinson, thank you so much for joining the show today. I want to begin by just congratulating you on receiving the Collins Outstanding Professor Award here at Baylor in 2022. And I want to just ask you to reflect on what this reward means to you, what in your own teaching do you think is being recognized and called out by such, a, such an, uh, an honor? I just want to first say thank you, Christopher, for inviting me to this podcast. This is my first podcast. I'm so excited. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> um, this is really inspiring. It's humbling to win this award because I know the rest of the candidates are better than me. They are phenomenal instructors. It's not only humbling, but it insp- I get goosebumps thinking about it. It inspires me to do better. It inspires me to reach the students I haven't, and I can't reach everyone. But it sends a strong message that somebody recognized something small that I, that I did correctly. Um, I really admire all of the, the rest of the faculty who are candidates every year. They're just amazing colleagues that I look up to. Um, I think what is being recognized is that students are learning how to learn or starting to learn how to learn. Mm-hmm. That learning is not just sitting and, and listening passively. Although the data suggests that there, there's actually a, an article that came out of a couple years ago that said students have the feeling of learning, but when you measure if they're learning by giving them a test, and you measure that group against the students who were actively engaged, Mm -hmm. the second group who were actively engaged in the learning do better on the assessments. Um, So that is being recognized, and perhaps by flipping these lectures that I've worked on for a couple of years, the students are having fun. They're having fun, they are staying awake at 8 a.m., and uh, yeah, they're not falling asleep. So just just small things that I think I'm doing right in this in this journey. So you mentioned just now here flip, flipping a course. What does that mean for you in your? I'm assuming this is your anatomy course. Yes, yeah. so it's an upper level bio course. It's mm-hmm. Biology 4432, and it is geared for pre physician assistant students, pre PT, 
pre-med, pre-dent. Um, it's not for nursing students. Mm -hmm. So it's really modeled after a gross anatomy course. The students dissect. We have higher level Bloom's taxonomy questions. Um, I tell the students, you're not here to diagnose because you're not physicians. You're not healthcare workers, but that is that is part of your future. So let's think about how we can problem solve. So let's think about how we can critically look at questions because in your future as healthcare workers, you're not really getting paid for what you know, but there, somebody is paying you for how you use what you know. Right. So the flipping of the course really involves with involves giving students a certain number of um, tools that they can use. This includes learning objectives that parallel the questions that they later see in class and on exams. Uh, PowerPoint questions that we call them informational, so they're just informational PowerPoints. Definitely a homework, so a formative assessment that involves two, maybe three lectures and other handouts. So the students are responsible for learn, yeah, learning on their own a little bit. They don't have to be experts, but they need to be familiar with the content. Then they come to class, and then their voice is important, but not on a singular level, because I don't want to put anybody on the spot. I don't want to be intimidating. I don't want to make them feel stupid or less than, because they're there to learn. They mm -hmm. wouldn't be taking the class if they knew everything. Right. We're all there to learn from each other. So they're paired with whoever they're sitting by, and then the flip lecture is a series of questions that they actually, they actually have that file before lecture, they just don't have the answers. Uh -huh. So the answers are revealed during the flip lecture. So let's say they look at a fracture, and then the question is, what nerve would potentially be damaged due to this fracture? Then they have a minute or so to think about the question based on the difficulty level, and the very next slide is the answer. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm that's how the, the flip lectures are. Um, they're very consistent in that that they get the tools beforehand and then they do something during lecture. I love what you mentioned about it's not it's not about it's learning information, it's about using the information yes. and the, the higher the higher air, arenas of Bloom's taxonomy. Yes. As much as I love and every, and America loves the show Jeopardy. It, I think it has really spoiled us in terms yes. of a wrong thinking about what it means to be smart. Right. Like that there's just that, that to be smart is just have this encyclopedic knowledge and to just spit out correct answers. Yes. When that doesn't that doesn't serve any purpose anywhere except on trivia night. Exactly. <laughs> right? Yes, Christopher. And the thing is that I tell the students you can always look up some information. Yep which is the reason or one of the reasons that I don't have a required textbook. Mm. I have highly recommended textbooks. Okay. And I say, you can go to, there are so many resources. Yeah. In fact, after the pandemic, during the pandemic, so many medical schools came up with these amazing full-on online yes. uh, gross anatomy courses right. for medical students. Mm -hmm. And they're free. Use them. Yep. And I recommend some textbooks, but yeah, to look up information 
And part of look, part of learning is actually knowing how to look up information. Yeah. Do you have any open access or, or open education resources on your recommendations list? This is something that Baylor is working on now to sort of I- increase the adoption of OER. As yes. We call it. So OER. So I have one atlas. It's a digital atlas called Complete Anatomy, mm-hmm. and was actually not free for the students. So the students had to buy it. But just recently, we now have a, an institutional subscription. That's great, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other resources. I mean, such a vast difference between now and even as short as maybe four years ago. Uh, go on Google and just do, you know, gross anatomy, online gross anatomy courses. University of Michigan School of Medicine, University of Wisconsin, University of Chicago, UCLA, Stanford. Amazing lab learning objective lectures syllabus Mm -hmm. powerpoints and questions yeah that's that's probably i mean you're a stem person and i'm a humanities person so i'm i'm from this side of the table i'm sort of thinking that's that's a real advantage of some stem fields is that the the content is so standardized yes and part of that is because of professional certifications and things like that where that you know the profession needs to recognize those right. content areas. So that really does open you up to so many other uh, potential information sources. Whereas yes. in the humanities, we're a little bit more locked into like our interpretation of the text right. and things like that. So we we always feel you know anytime I'm recommending a, uh, or or assigning <laughs> like a YouTube video, I yeah. I watch it and I like wring my hands and I go, oh, I wish they didn't say it that way because I don't really yes. agree with that. Right, right. But whereas in anatomy, yeah. it, it's uh, you know the fracture of the greater tubercle of the humerus is the same in Waco as it is in, <laughs> exactly. in Michigan. Exactly. So let's talk a little bit about that student buy-in piece of this. Do yeah. you do you face resistance from students? How do you prepare them for your kind of flipped learning experience? So so I did it slowly, Christopher, so that, that I did not go from informational lectures one semester to fully to, mm-hmm. to flipping every lecture the following semester. I remember the first semester that I flipped the lecture, it was the third lecture of the semester. It was the skull lecture, and anyone who's taken anatomy knows that skull is one of the most difficult, notorious, formidable contents of human anatomy. The skull has so many holes, and through every hole, there's some structure that goes through it. Yeah. So what I did is that I gave a short informational lecture during that first flip lecture, during that first semester. Sure. And I said, okay, we're gonna, I'm gonna lecture for about 10 minutes. And then we're gonna look at a a few questions. And I said, this is a, this is called the mixed lecture. So I lectured for about 10 minutes, then we did five questions. And during the, I got goosebumps just thinking about it. It was an amazing experience. During those five questions, you could hear everyone talk. Almost everyone was on topic because I told them the exam questions <clears throat> are going to be very similar. Yeah. I don't make the exam questions that much harder. The students do well at what they practice. Right. Mm-hmm. And so they, they loved it. And then the following, the following week, I had a fully informational lecture. And then I sent out a Qualtrics survey. Yep. And I said, you know, five questions, I'm going to give you extra credit. You're going to you're going to finish in like 2 minutes. What did you like? Almost everyone liked the flip lecture. No grade attached to it. Yeah. They get to see questions 
that they see similar, not identical, but similar difficulty on the exam. Yeah. It's a win-win situation. And if you don't know it during lecture, so what? It, it's just, I mean, it was amazing. I didn't expect that most students would like it. Yeah. Because they were faced with having to do, oh, I gotta look at learning objectives. I've gotta look at this handout. I've gotta look at these PowerPoints before I go to lecture. Right. I've gotta watch a couple of videos. But they have to work hard anyway. We're just changing what that hard work looks like. Yep, yep, the order of it and that yes. kind of thing. Yes, yeah. and they leave the classroom knowing how to answer questions, looking at the stem of a question, and then going, and I empower them with, go design your own question. Yes. Mm. And all of a sudden, they're coming up, they're sending me questions that I'm like, can I steal this for my test? <laughs> because this is great. Yeah, yeah. Some instructors do actually, yeah. you know, funnel that, that into actual exams. And, yes. And, uh, and the students just love it when they see their yes. own question on yes. the exam, it's right? It's just, it's amazing. Yeah. So with all of the caveats and qualifications that we know about talking about student evaluations, like mm -hmm. end of course evaluations, yeah. what difference has this made? What, how have you seen your new approach, your flipped approach? approach sort of represented in that end of semester evaluation so for and i <laughs> i read most of my evaluations especially lecture because the the lab is you know i have lab assistants and yeah. it's a little bit more um loosely structured right but lectures i read most of the evaluations they love the flip lectures now they may not like aspects such as oh i wish we had four exams yep. or oh i wish we had a drop exam or I wish we had fewer quizzes. It is mostly centered around the number of assessments or the fact that the final exam should not be comprehensive. Yeah. Regarding the flip lectures, they almost all really like it because they realize that they have two choices, either looking at the questions that they may see similar to them on the exam or having informational PowerPoints, and then looking at a question for the first time right. when it really counts. Mm -hmm. And I am not about giving them easy questions during flip lectures because you're you're not you're not preparing them yeah. for exams. What made me think of the student evaluations pieces? I remember early on in my teaching, which was not that long ago, one of the things that students uh, pretty consistently. Crit criticized me for was the exams don't really match well mm. uh, they didn't have mm -hmm. exactly the language for it but they were saying things like oh the it was hard to know what would be on the exam and right. th like that's the way they phrased right. it and so what you're doing is much more upfront and I mean we talk in in <sighs> teaching and learning literature about like alignment so you're aligning yes. the 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 assessment more right. with the actual activities right so three things and it's it's hard work, but it gets easier as you go through the semester and go through several years. Learning objectives, assessment in class, and then exams. Right. Mm -hmm. And they, they end up doing better. Well, I had the pleasure of attending your, I don't know if you call it acceptance lecture, <laughs> your, 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 your public <laughs> lecture uh, connected to like your that. Collins Award. And what I, one thing I really loved about your presentation is that you were upfront with colleagues and students in in the audience about your own struggles in learning, especially in graduate school. Why do you think this kind of honesty is important? So I think that my transparency and honest 
empathy helps me teach that it creates stronger connections with students that we all put our pants on one leg at a time and it really doesn't matter who you are i had my struggles and if i can learn from my struggles and make a difference in your life mm -hmm. then let me do that i think that learning is an attribute of our personalities and i cannot hang my personal life outside of the lecture room and walk in yeah that i bring all of that with me all of that is my experience and that helps me teach better that's number one and number two is that my struggles were with gross anatomy specifically because it was 400 students uh -huh. and i was intimidated yeah i was up against students who were going to be you know future orthopedic surgeons and and go to, to dermatology and ophthalmology and let me tell you those are the three cartels <laughs> of residency <laughs> and i was like i'm gonna fail there's no one to ask a question there's no one to help me um and i found active learning with my own phd advisor who was a cell biologist but taught embryology to the medical school apart from that lecture class yes yeah. apart from it in lab he taught me not just gross anatomy, but how to teach gross anatomy. He, we were doing active learning long before it probably had a term. Yeah. He was doing small groups with me, there were th only three of us. So, four, so 397 were pre-health, and then there were three graduate students. Mm -hmm. And I thought, for sure, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fail graduate school because I'm going to fail gross anatomy. Yeah. I ended up with an A, but it was because how Dr. Tomasak taught gross anatomy to the three of us. Yep. Small, just conversation after conversation. I would walk in the lab and I was doing an experiment and he would say, okay, tell me about this nerve. Yep. And I'm like, what do you mean? Give me a story. Yeah. He taught me how to frame my lectures in stories. And, and it's powerful. That's fantastic. Yeah. Would that we all had such an experience. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Well, and, I, and I have a theory. I don't know if there's any data to back this up, but the, the instructors who not only may, may have sh struggled in their own learning, but have really written that into their own personal narrative yes. can be some of the best yes. instructors because so for so many of us as folks with PhD, like we are not our typical student. Like we know this thing and we care about it so much more than our students do. Yes. And and the biggest divide is just putting ourselves in that position of right. maybe I don't, let's pretend, what would it feel like if I didn't care as much about this as yeah. I do? Yes. Or if I didn't have this knowledge and all of the mental constructs that I do. And so if you've had that struggle and kind of written that into your own personal narrative, that's an easier place to return to. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. And it, it just, I like to feel vulnerable when I'm teaching. It just makes teaching easier and it makes me enjoy what I do in the class. I love what I do because I feel like the students can can feel how I am coming across with this information. Yeah. And they feel that passion. So in their student evaluations, they may complain about the assessments, yeah. but they almost invariably will say that I'm so passionate about teaching because I just love it. Yeah. 
Well, what we haven't talked about yet, which is another distinguishing feature of your courses, is the role of learning assistants. Right. So for those listeners who maybe just don't even know what that is, can you give us some background on what sure. a learning assistant is and then how this uh, plays in your classes? Sure. So the learning assistant program was started in around 2003 at the University of Colorado in Boulder. And so um, the, the LA program has three pillars. Number one is that the learning assistant should be a high-performing student who has taken, let's just say, anatomy a, a previous semester and done well. Mm-hmm. Then they can be in LA for the professor, but at the same time, the first time LAs have to take a pedagogy course. So it happens that um, I teach the pedagogy course in our department. So all of the first-time LAs during their first semester take a pedagogy course where they learn about how to teach, how to learn, what is Bloom's taxonomy, how metacognition, how do you know you've learned something, right. among many other topics, and this is all data-driven. Then they also have a one-hour upper-level bio course with the professor for whom they LA, and then they practice doing active learning modules, and it can look different for different classes. It can be clicker questions, it can be a flip lecture, it can be... PowerPoint questions, you know, 10 questions followed by answers. So whatever that looks like has to require the LAs to go to class and actually interact with their peers during class, which sets it a little bit different than what the supplemental instructor program is, where the SIs meet with the students outside of class. Right. Mm -hmm. And so for my class, I have nine LAs this semester. And what they do is they, they look at the learning objectives for every lecture to make sure that they align with my flip lecture. They design the homework questions. Um, they have Zoom office hours. Then they meet in person with the students. And the LAs have a, a certain number of students that they're assigned to, and they sit with the students. So they don't stand and say, how are you doing? Because yeah. usually the student says, I'm just fine. Right. And you? <laughs> Right. So, how? What have you learned in the process of mentoring these these students to be sort of junior teaching staff? Yes. Have there been any b- bumps in the road on? Yes, absolutely, Christopher. I think that many of them, even though all of them either have A's or B's in a, a previous semester, um, they're worried that I don't know all of this information. Right. Yeah. To which I answer, you don't have to. Uh-huh. Nobody knows everything. You look it up. But you're there, you're there to guide them to answer the question. Right. Um, you know more than they do because you've taken it. And the data shows that they are more likely to share with you and to learn with you than somebody who's much older. Yeah. So that slight age difference or no age difference is, plays an amazing role. Um, the LAs are shy. I mean, I have shy students who are like, I'm not good at you know, talking in front of people. Yeah. I'm like, it's okay. We just take baby steps. Right. And and I said, you know, at some point you're going to have to give a presentation or lecture and you're going to teach. You may not go into teaching. Right. But if you're going to be a physician, you're going to teach. If yep. you're going to go to med school, you're going to teach. You're going to teach at some point to a small or large group. Yeah. Let's start now. Yeah. So much of learning in any in any discipline, well, I should say so much of teaching in any dis- discipline 
doing it well comes down to helping the students in their thought processes. Yes. And so yes. it sounds to me like, especially as you're training them to like ask better questions of their yes. of their students, boy, if if full time faculty could get a hold of that, you know, and just learn that it's not it's really not a matter of how much I know. It's no. about what skills do I have to help them right. develop their thinking process. Exactly. And it's all about guiding them to the correct answer. So, yeah. you know, don't ask, um, are you doing okay? Or um, can I help you? The, those closed right. questions, mm-hmm. usually they're faced with, I'm doing fine, and they go back. But ask them, so walk me through this, yep. your mm-hmm. thought process. Mm-hmm. What are you thinking about this question? Let's see if we can find the answer. Yeah. Um, they may not know the answer immediately, but they will. And that peer interaction is priceless. Yeah. Something that I learned from... Is it Mortensen? Is that Morton? Morton. David, Mo- David Morton. David yeah, Morton. Yeah, when he was here at, at, at Baylor. Yep. And I know you're a, you're a fan. Uh, Big when fan. he gave a presentation here, was just the power of why. Yes. And so I, when I observe faculty or graduate instructors, I find myself saying some version of this in almost every feedback form. Is no matter when you ask a student a question, no matter how they answer, right or wrong. Ask them why they answered that way. Yes. Because you're making transparent the thought process. Yes. If they answered wrong, you're helping them to see where their where the weak links are. If they answered right, you're reinforcing the the strength in their thought yes. process. Yes. Right? In fact, that's an interesting point because when we look at questions in our flip lecture, if the students say, "Oh, you know, the question, the uh, correct answer is B," then the discussion is. Well, tell me why A, C, D, and E are incorrect. Good, yep. Mm-hmm. And that is a, a powerful journey to learning not only that concept, but what if I change the wording of that question, Yep. right? Mm-hmm. So this works on their, you know, can you deduce information? Can I give you this information and then ask it in a totally different way? Can you still get the right answer? Right. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm a big fan of David Morton. Yeah, we'll I'm we'll put a link uh, to some amazing. of the video or materials in our yes. show notes here. So, in the process of teaching your pedagogy class for the learning assistants, how has this helped you to grow as an instructor? Either <laughs> reading through the the pedagogy literature that maybe you hadn't had an opportunity to read yes. through before, or just you know, we all learn better once we have to teach a thing. So how has that helped you in your own development? Boy, you know, when I first started, I I, I thought, well, let me, let me look up that word first. (laughs) The the pedagogy word? Pedagogy. (laughs) What the heck? What the heck? Um, At first, I felt like there was a chiasm that I'm teaching pedagogy and then I'm teaching anatomy. And, and it really didn't merge until maybe a, a couple of semesters later. Yeah. And in the, it was in that time period where I was also thinking about flipping lectures. So what I did, and I'm continuing to do, is that I fused elements of pedagogy into anatomy. Yep. So frequently I talk to students about how do you learn? What is learning? Show me what good learning looks like. Is it about looking at PowerPoint slides? Mm-hmm. Is it about rereading a textbook? Is it highlighting? And the answer to all of those questions is no. <laughs> no. Right. It's about assessment. 
So I talk a lot about what we discuss with the LAs and pedagogy and anatomy. In fact, I have a link in my modules on Canvas, how to be effective learners. Yes. And when you can learn better, it just really changes the entire way that you approach um, school. Yeah. And also changes the way you teach. Yeah. I mean, teaching and learning, I think, are intimately connected. Right. And students get, they often get a lot of good stuff in like those first year freshman seminar courses, like study skills. But the research shows that they have trouble transferring that right. to the actual class. Yes. And so whether that's a matter of like the transfer itself is hard because learning is so context dependent or just because they need it, they need to hear it repeatedly over and over and over they again do. that highlighting your textbook doesn't help. Right. And it's it's unlearning bad habits and things like that because for many of our students, especially at a place like uh, that's that's selective, like Baylor, right. students have succeeded in high school with really bad study yes. habits because yes. they just haven't needed to, to really study very hard. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I putting mean, them into classes, I wish, I wish we could all just sort of get in the habit of that. I think that more instructors should talk about how do you learn you know student comes to you and says um i'm failing and i'm i'm studying every night right i'm studying a lot yeah and my question is show me how are you studying let's study together so they take me through this short journey of their studying and i look i have a glimpse now of what that studying looks like and if it is rereading i'm looking at powerpoints that is not reading. Right. Are you looking at quiz questions? Here mm-hmm. are the links, and, and then they'll ask, where are they? Oh, let's look at Canvas. Yep. There are these <laughs> links, all free. Look at these quiz questions. Yep. Yes, they make you uncomfortable. But being uncomfortable and struggling, it's actually part of learning. Yep. You learn better. And, I mean, as students, we I used to do that. If I was looking at something and I thought, oh, I know it, it made me feel comfortable yep. and warm and fuzzy. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I know this, only to find out that I didn't. Right. It's a, yeah, it's, it's, it's so much of what, like, Bob Bjork talks about, the desirable difficulty. Yes, right? yes, like, yes. The things that actually make you learn are the things that are in, in the process of it. You don't feel like you're learning right. because that feeling of mastery eludes you by definition. Because right. you're working on the things that you don't know very Absolutely. well. Absolutely. So it seems very frustrating and very counterproductive yes. in the moment. Yes. <laughs> in fact, um, uh, the chairman of the neuroscience department, Dr. Chuck Weaver, gives a lecture to my right. pedagogy class. Mm-hmm. And he talks about desirable difficulties. And then there's that book that... Um, yeah, we've got the, Make It Stick. Make that, It yeah, Stick, thank you. What yep. a fantastic book. Yep. So we you know, have excerpts of that for the LAs. And then I tell my anatomy students about that. Yep. So back to your question, I really try to fuse so many of the elements of pedagogy with anatomy, which makes me hopefully teach both of them better. Yeah. <laughs> that's the hope, right? That's the hope. That's the so hope. So I know you well enough to know that you're always thinking about something new and wanting to try something new Ooh. in your teaching. So yeah. what what's like on the horizon that you've wanted to try to implement, whether with your learning assistants or just in your standard now flipped uh, anatomy courses? So I want to have zero DFWs. Mm-hmm. When a student fails, part of me has failed. I want to reach that student who sits in the back of the class, who 
who doesn't talk to the LA and the LA has reached out to them several times through email, um, sat by them. They don't want to talk to me. They don't want to talk to the LA. I want to reach that student. I want to see how I can help him or her to open up. Right. Something is happening and I need to make that connection. It is, that is my goal to reduce those numbers. Yeah. To include as many students as possible because you know this is what I tell my students, if I can do it, so can you. Yeah. So can you. One more point that I, I need to make and I was kind of thinking about that as I was walking here. Many of my awesome LAs are not the ones who made A's in my class as students. Yeah. They're the ones who struggled a little bit, then got A's, yep. or struggled a little bit and got a B. Yes. Mm-hmm. It is that perspective that the student who's struggling needs. Yes. It's not the one who says, oh, this stuff is easy. I don't know why you have a problem with it. Right. Yep. So maybe that's something to foreground in continuing efforts to yes. reach those students. Yes. Is our LAs, they're not chosen because they they came into class knowing this already. Right. They struggle. Absolutely. And they know how to help you struggle within yes. your struggles too. And of course, this LA program is one aspect of one way that we can help with diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yes. I mean, the LAs are diverse. It's a mm-hmm. diverse population. So yep. that student who feels different can look at the LA and say, wow, if she can be in a, this peer leadership position, I can as well. Yeah. And that is so empowering. Yeah. Well, and and I, I'm sure you're, I mean, this is still new, but you're, you're, you're getting to the point maybe where you can follow these LA students after graduation. And I think that there's some research. Our former colleague, uh, Michael Moore, was doing some yes. work on um, sort of science efficacy, right, right? related to yes. that there's sort of their self-image of themselves as scientists or potential scientists as a result of being involved right. in, in right. LA we programs. We definitely need to look at that, the cohort of yeah. LAs who later go to med school or yep. graduate school and just kind of see in what fields they end up in. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fantastic. This is great work. Up and down, all the way, all the way. <laughs> Mojigan Parisi Robinson, thank you again for joining the show. And again, congratulations on the Collins thank Award. You. Well deserved. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Our thanks again to Mojgan Parisi Robinson for speaking with us today. In today's show notes, you'll find links to David Morton's Anatomy Teaching Resources, Bob Bjork's Desirable Difficulties, and a recent article dealing with the difference between feelings of learning and actual learning. That's our show. Thanks for listening, and join us next time on Professors Talk Pedagogy.